poor Wiley Coyote, man. The guy just can never seem to catch the Roadrunner. Well, I thought of that cartoon this week as I was preparing our sermon this morning because the last couple of weeks we've seen the Jewish religious leaders in their attempts to trap Jesus and to uh, find some way to accuse him and to commit him guilty of a crime so that they can get rid of him. And uh, all week long as I was studying our passage this morning in Luke chapter 20, I just kept thinking, this reminds me so much of Wiley Coyote. These Jewish religious leaders, it's like every day they come up with these new schemes, these new tactics to attack Jesus, to try to get rid of him, and somehow Jesus continues to get out of their trap. Well, not somehow, Jesus was the son of God, he was divine. But, but Jesus repeatedly thwarts their attempts and leaves them discouraged and, and uh, just flailing in the wind, looking for some way to get rid of them. Well, today we're going to look at another one of these attempts, uh, two of these, uh, two attempts this morning, where the religious leaders of Israel again are trying to trap Jesus. Now, just again, to set the context of where we are in our, our sermon series, uh, we've sort of jumped around. We've been, over the course of the past nine months, looking at the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Then we, we fast-forwarded during Holy Week, and we looked at the Passion narratives and the Resurrection narratives. And now we're coming back the last few weeks looking at some of these key elements that led up to the Passion Week, that led up to the, the trials and crucifixion of Jesus. And today, again, we're going to see two instances where the Pharisees attempted to trap Jesus. Now, Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, he once made this famous declaration. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Death and taxes. Now, while I would disagree with Mr. Franklin on the question of what we can know with certainty, it is definitely true that death and taxes have been at the forefront of humanity's concerns throughout the ages. We see this fact reflected in the two traps the religious leaders confront Jesus with in our passage today. One is a question on taxes, and the other is a question on death and resurrection. So these have been issues that people have been wrestling with and thinking about for many, many years. And what we're going to find this morning is that along with masterfully responding to his critics' challenge, once again, demonstrating his sovereign wisdom and authority, Jesus also is going to offer us some important insights on these two matters, taxes and death and resurrection. In Jesus' teachings today, we're going to discover some key principles for understanding our role as Christians, our relationship as Christians to our government, but we're also going to see some important truths this morning about the nature of of the afterlife and the Christian's eternal destiny. So, so again, while the Pharisees and the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, we're going to see Jesus avoid these traps and at the same time share with us some powerful truths that we can apply even to our lives today. This morning what I want to do is I'm going to divide our passage into two sections. We're going to look at Luke chapter 20 verses uh, 20 through 40. And I want to start out by reading together verses 20 through 26. So if you would, follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. Keeping a close watch on him, they, the religious leaders, sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, teacher, 
We know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him on what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. I need to apologize this morning. I've been fighting a cold all week and started losing my voice earlier in the week, and so I'm, I may have to take a few sips of water here as I go along this morning. Trap number one, however, this morning that the religious leaders try to catch Jesus in. We're going to call this first trap, either way you pay. Trap number one, either way you pay. What was the spies' attack on Jesus? Well, in verse 22, we see that they come to Jesus and they ask him a question on taxes. Jesus, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the tax in question was most likely the Roman poll tax. This was an annual tax that every citizen in Israel had to pay to the Romans. It was in the amount of one denarius, which was a Roman silver coin, which was basically worth about a day's wages. And every year, every person in Israel had to pay this tax, this poll tax. And the Jews hated this tax because it was a constant reminder to them that they were under Roman occupation and Roman oppression. And so these spies think they've got Jesus in a great quandary here. Jesus, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? See, here's how how the Jewish spies thought this trap was going to work. See, in their thinking, if Jesus responds and says, no, you shouldn't pay the Romans tax, then these guys are just going to run to the Roman authorities and tell them, hey, Jesus is trying to break the law. He's telling people we don't need to pay the taxes. And so then the Romans would arrest him and, and get rid of him. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay the Romans tax, well, then Jesus is going to look like a traitor to all the Jewish people who all hate this tax. And these religious spies think that the people will give up on him. He'll, he'll lose his popularity and, and people will just go home. And so these Jewish spies think they've set the perfect trap for Jesus. They're thinking, Jesus, no matter how you answer this one, either way, you're going to pay. Either way, you're going to pay. Well, what was Jesus' response? Verse 24, Jesus tells these religious spies, show me a denarius. Show me this coin. And then he asks, whose portrait and inscription are on it? Now, the Roman denarius, we have a picture of it here on the screen. On, On one side had the image of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. On the other side of the coin, it had the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Now Jesus asked these Romans or these Jewish spies, show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? And they respond, obviously, well, Caesar's. And so in verse 25, Jesus gives this brilliant reply. Jesus says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. 
It's a brilliant reply. See, please understand what Jesus has done. He's completely sidestepped the trap the religious spies have set for him. On one hand, he affirms that secular government has a right to exist, a right to function, and that it should be respected. But at the same time, he also makes clear that God's people must ultimately swear allegiance to a higher authority, to God himself. Some historians and commentators have argued that this is the most significant political statement ever made in human history. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In fact, this single statement set the tone for all of Western democracy to follow. The idea that we have a responsibility to our governments, and yet ultimately we are accountable to a higher authority. Now now understand this, friends, when it comes to our relationship to the government as Christians. Jesus' answer here not only did it have this huge political significance historically, but it also sets the pattern for us today in terms of our relationship to government. And it sets the pattern for us in this. It basically paves the way for everything else we're taught about this issue throughout the New Testament. What is the Christian's relationship to government? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And we see this affirmed throughout the New Testament. If you go to Romans chapter 13, for example, in verses 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so bring judgment on themselves. And then we look at the Apostle Peter. What did the Apostle Peter teach on this matter? 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. This is the Bible's teaching on our Christian relationship to government. Now, please remember, friends, when we read instructions like these, Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, when we read these passages, keep in mind the historical context in which Paul and Peter were writing. Okay? Paul and Peter, when they wrote these divinely inspired words, they were living under brutal regimes which were headed by evil men. The Emperor Nero in Rome, the Herod family in Israel. Friends, if you look at history, these guys were ruthless, they were corrupt, they were morally depraved individuals. I mean, if you have concerns today about President Trump's moral failings, these guys make President Trump look like a choir boy. And what does the Bible tell us our responsibility is to these governments? The Bible tells us in the divinely inspired word of God, 
that we are called to submit to the government's authority. In other words, we're called to be law-abiding citizens wherever we live. And why is that? It's because this is an important part of our testimony to the world. It's an important part of our testimony. A few years ago, we had a guy coming to our church for a while. He had apparently gotten himself involved in this separatist movement, which claimed that the United States Constitution was invalid, and he had joined this movement that had their own constitution. And, and since the Constitution of the United States was invalid, he, he argued that we didn't need to follow the laws of the U.S. government. We didn't need to pay our taxes. We shouldn't use United States currency. We should only use gold or silver. He had this whole list of grievances against the government and all these arguments for why we didn't need to follow the laws of the government. And he had started sharing some of these ideas in some of our ABF groups on Sunday morning. And so Pastor Rick and I, we called him into our office one week and sat down to meet with him. We wanted to just kind of hear more where he was coming from and, and try to help him see the light on some of these issues. And, and as we talked, you know, he went through his long list of grievances he had against the government and, and why we shouldn't obey the government, why we shouldn't pay our taxes, why we shouldn't follow the laws of the government, because the government's all invalid. And we pointed out to him these biblical admonitions that were given in Scripture. Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. And he said, oh, well, well, well. And he had all these excuses for why we shouldn't follow the Bible's teaching on these matters. And I shared with this man, we'll call him Bob for, for, for the sake of today. I said to Bob, I said, Bob, look at even if what you're saying is true, God's word still tells us that this is our responsibility to the government. And I said to Bob, Rob, do you know we have brothers and sisters in Christ today who are living under far more oppressive regimes in other places around the world than what you think we're experiencing here in America? And you know what those brothers and sisters are doing today? They're faithfully submitting to the authority of the government, and they're honoring King Jesus by their lives and the way they live. Because that's our calling in this world, friends. This world is not our home. We are just temporary residents passing through. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We are called to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is our allegiance above and beyond any political concerns, any political party whatsoever. Jesus Christ is our king. And I think as, as children of the revolution here in America, we often forget that reality. You know, our country was seated in revolution. But we forget that as Christians, our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus, not to any particular form of government. Now, obviously, some of you might be thinking, well, is there ever a time where Christians should stand opposed to their government? And there certainly are times, friends, when a Christian must stand against the will of the government. Because again, our ultimate allegiance is to God. So, for example, if the government would ever order us to violate God's law or, or ask us to commit an immoral act or ask a Christian to, to violate our, our Christian conscience, we would have to say no. And we would have to stand against our government at that point. And, and we find examples of this kind of Christian opposition to government throughout Scripture, biblical opposition to government. For example, in, in, uh, in the book of uh, Exodus, chapter 1, 
We have the story of the Hebrew midwives who refused Pharaoh's order to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. The, the Egyptians were getting concerned that the Jewish people, the Israelites, were growing too numerous. And so Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives, I want you to kill all the baby boys that are born. Not only did the Hebrew midwives refuse to follow Pharaoh's orders, but they actually lied to him that they had been following his orders. Why did they stand in opposition to Pharaoh? Because he was asking them to commit an immoral act that went against our higher authorities, God's laws. Not only the Hebrew midwives, but, but we also see, for example, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 3, Daniel and his friends standing up to King Nebuchadnezzar and his idolatry in Babylon. Remember the story? King Nebuchadnezzar made this grand golden idol, and he ordered everybody in the empire to bow down and worship the idol. Daniel and his friends refused. And what happened to them? They were thrown in a lion's den. They were thrown into a fiery furnace, Right? but they would not follow an immoral order of the government to bow down and worship a false idol. We can turn to the New Testament, for example, in Acts chapter 4. We see the story of Peter and John refusing the Jewish Sanhedrin's order to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop preaching about Jesus. If you guys just stop preaching about Jesus, everything will calm down. There won't be any conflict. Just go home. We'll go back to normal. Everything will be all good. Peter and John say, we can't stop proclaiming the truth. Jesus is alive. He's risen again. He's the Savior of the world. We have to obey God over any human authority. So there are times, friends, when as Christians we need to oppose our governments. But understand this this morning. These are extreme situations. And so our primary calling as Christians is to live peaceably and responsibly, submitting to the authority of our government while at the same time bearing witness to the truth that our ultimate allegiance is to a king who is sovereign over every human government, King Jesus. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And what is God's? God owns everything. He is sovereign over everything. You bear his image. He owns you. He created you. He controls your destiny. And God wants to be the Lord of your life. And so we submit to our government authorities, but we give King Jesus our ultimate allegiance. Now, in verses 27 through 40, we see the second trap that these Jewish leaders tried to catch Jesus in. Let's read these verses together, verses 27 through 40. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age 
and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. The second trap that we see these Jewish religious leaders try to spring on Jesus, we're going to call this trap happily ever hereafter. Happily ever hereafter. We're told that this second trap today was set by a group known as the Sadducees. And what was the Sadducees' attack? In verse 33, we see the question, Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, we need to understand a little background on the Sadducees before we explain this trap. The Sadducees were basically the theological liberals of Jesus' day. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, They said the rest of the Bible wasn't really divinely inspired, so they only accepted the Torah, but then they only accepted the moral teachings of the Torah. So in other words, again, these guys were basically theological liberals. No miracles, no resurrection. They just accepted the moral teachings of the first five books of Moses. And and so their challenge to Jesus was really to stump Jesus on the question of the resurrection. They obviously knew that Jesus had been proclaiming the resurrection and that he himself had prophesied that he would rise from the the dead. And and these Sadducees had had this long-running debate with their rivals, the conservatives, the Pharisees, who did believe in the divine inspiration of the whole Testament, who did believe in miracles, who did believe in the resurrection. And so the Sadducees posed this question to Jesus that they had probably posed to the Pharisees numerous times. It was kind of like their trump card. It was this ridiculous idea, this ridiculous story where this woman continues to experience the loss of her husbands. And and this whole idea came out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 5. It was a concept that God gave the Jewish people called leveret marriage. And basically, God had given this concept of leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25 as a way to assure that the family lineage would live on if a husband died. And so, for example, if, if I died, my brother then would take my wife and help her bear children so that my family line could continue to live on. This was a provision that God had given the Israelites to assure the the ongoing growth and survival of the nation of Israel. All right? Now, the Sadducees come up with this incredible dilemma. All right, Jesus, let's say there's this woman. She marries this guy, and he dies. And so she marries his brother, and then he dies. And so he marries the third brother, and then he dies. Friends, at this point, I'm starting to question what this lady's putting in her matzo balls. You know what I'm saying? Right? Ultimately, she ends up marrying seven of the different brothers, and they all die, and then she dies, and the Sadducees think they've got Jesus stumped now. So Jesus, if the resurrection is true, whose wife is she going to be in the afterlife? Whose wife is she going to be? 
See, they think they've got Jesus trapped in either having to affirm some kind of freaky incestuous relationship or else just showing the absolute absurdity of the idea of the resurrection altogether. And so Jesus responds to these Sadducees by pointing out three truths. Three truths. Number one, Jesus highlights for them a different reality. In verse 34, Jesus makes clear to these Sadducees that that the age to come is going to be different from our experience in life today. The the Sadducees, the, the primary mistake they made was assuming that our experience in the afterlife is going to be just like our experience of life today. But, but Jesus says that's not the case. For example, Jesus says marriage is an institution for this age. So our experience in the afterlife is going to be different from what we know today. One of the ways that our experience in the afterlife is going to be different, this leads me to point number two, Jesus tells us in verse 35 and 36, we're going to have a different kind of relationship in the afterlife. There's not going to be marriage like we know it today. There won't be marriage in heaven. Jesus says we'll be like the angels. We won't be married in heaven. Marriage as we know it will be no longer necessary. And why is that? Well, let me suggest three reasons. First of all, there won't be any need at that point in heaven for the intimate companionship that we experience in marriage in this world. Why did God create the institution of marriage? If you look back in Genesis chapter 2, God brought all the animals to Adam for ha- to have Adam name all the animals. After naming all the animals, Adam realized they all had a mate, but he didn't have a mate. And so God created Eve to bring a helpmate, a partner to Adam so that he could experience intimate companionship. But friends, when we're in heaven, we are going to know the most intimate companionship possible with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all time. We're going to know the most intimate companionship possible in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, our Creator God. And so that part of marriage is no longer going to be necessary in the afterlife. Secondly, we're not going to need marriage in heaven because there's no longer going to be a need for procreation. The Bible tells us one of the primary reasons God created marriage was so that humanity would be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth. We're not going to need procreation in heaven. That's not going to be a part of the age to come. Thirdly, there's no longer going to be a need to reflect our union with Christ to a fallen world. One of the main reasons God instituted marriage, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, marriage in this world is to be a reflection of the intimate union we have with Christ through our salvation. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ laid down his life for the church. Wives, submit to your husbands just as Christ submitted and made himself a servant to come and bring us salvation. When we come together in marriage in this world, it's a reflection of the ultimate union we have with Christ that he has with us, his bride. We're no longer going to need to have that representation in heaven because we're all going to experience that perfect union together. We're going to know that perfectly. Now, I know that the idea that there won't be any marriage in heaven may be discouraging for some of you this morning. You know, maybe you're happily married today and you, you just think, I can't even imagine not being married to my spouse in heaven. Heaven couldn't be heaven if I wasn't married to that woman, if I wasn't married to that guy. 
Or, or maybe you're, you're thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the joys of marriage in this life. And what if Jesus comes back? Or what if I die and I never get to experience marriage in this life? Right? And, and, and so you're just a little concerned and, and possibly disappointed at the idea that there won't be marriage in heaven. Well, let me give you some encouragement this morning on these points. First of all, number one, the Bible tells us that we will still know our loved ones in heaven. We're still going to know our loved ones in heaven. All right? Kim is still going to be the woman who I was married to in our earthly lives. She's still going to be the lady who was my wife in this world. I'm still going to know her as such. Caleb and Addie are still going to be my kids when we get to heaven. Now, friends, our relationship is going to be different, but they certainly won't be any less meaningful. Whatever our relationships end up looking like, they will be more meaningful in heaven to us than they are in this world right now. Secondly, whatever our relationships end up looking like in heaven, what I can say with absolute confidence this morning is this. Everything we love about this world and our relationships in this world will pale in comparison to the joys of heaven. They'll pale in comparison. Now, we can't even fathom that today, to be honest with you. But it's true. The joys of heaven are going to be infinitely greater. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, The Way to Glory, he he shares this, this thought. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, the joys of heaven, the glory of heaven is going to make everything in this world pale by comparison. And so this morning, maybe you're here today and maybe you've been disappointed in your marriage. Maybe it hasn't been everything that you were hoping it was going to be. You know what God would say to you? He would say, stay faithful, honor your covenant, honor the Lord, and one day you are going to know true joy in your relationships. Maybe you've been blessed with the greatest spouse you could ever hope for. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just thinking, man, this woman sitting next to me, this guy sitting next to me, I, I couldn't have even have dreamed of a greater relationship. And friends, if that's where you are today, I would just say thank the Lord for that blessing. Cherish your spouse. But know that whatever your relationship to that person is today, it is going to pale in comparison to how you will know that person in heaven. Heaven is going to be infinitely greater. Maybe you're not married this morning. Maybe you're afraid of of what you're you're missing out on. Maybe you've been single your entire life, and, and, and that's something that you've always mourned. Friends, I can tell you this. God knows the trial and the struggle of your singleness. And he will be your source of joy in this life. And one day, you will know infinite joy in your relationships with others.
and with God in heaven. The reality is, friends, we are all just making mud pies in a slum compared to what we're going to experience in glory together. Thirdly, Jesus responds to the Sadducees by pointing out a different reading, a different reading of Scripture. The Sadducees, as I said earlier, they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of Moses. And so Jesus takes them to the one part of the Old Testament that they did believe. He takes them to Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, the story of the burning bush. If you go to Exodus 3, 4 through 6, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses answered, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. In our passage in Luke chapter 20, Jesus quotes the story of the burning bush to the Sadducees. He takes them to the one part of the Old Testament that they did believe. And what Jesus highlights for the Sadducees, these men who denied the resurrection, is he points out what God says in the Old Testament. God says to Moses that he is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob. Not that he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not past tense. No, he is today the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they're still alive. He is still their God today. Jesus is basically saying to the Sadducees here, look at if you knew your Bibles as well as you claim, you would know that the resurrection is true because God affirms that he is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, yet today, not past tense. And when they heard this, verse 40 tells us that they were amazed. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Like the roadrunner repeatedly getting out of Wile E. Coyote's traps, Jesus has once again thwarted his enemies. You see, they couldn't trap him because he was the Son of God, God in human flesh. We saw last week they tried to trap him on the question of authority. Today they tried to trap him on a political issue, taxes. And then they tried to trap him on a theological issue, the resurrection. And they couldn't trap Jesus because he was the son of God with divine wisdom and divine authority. And no one dared ask him any more questions. We see later that the religious leaders ultimately had to lie and fabricate lies in order to get Pontius Pilate to agree to crucify Jesus because he had no sin, and they couldn't trip him up. They couldn't entrap him. This morning, as we think about the reality of these traps that the religious leaders had sprung on Jesus, that he repeatedly sidestepped, it it leads me to ask a question for us this morning. And this question is this, are you looking for loopholes today, or are you looking for the Lord? You know, this is really the fundamental issue that all of us need to ask ourselves. When it comes to Jesus Christ, are you looking for loopholes or for the Lord? 
You see, the problem with the religious leaders of Israel is they weren't really interested in the truth. They didn't care about the truth. They just wanted to keep their authority. And so they just kept looking for excuses for why they shouldn't believe in Jesus. And you know something, friends? There's a lot of people in our world just like those religious leaders 2,000 years ago. There's a lot of people in our world today who spend their lives looking for loopholes, reasons why they don't need to believe, instead of submitting and trusting in Jesus as their creator, as their king, as their savior and Lord. You know, it's interesting. I I talk to people all the time as a pastor. People struggling with different realities in their lives. And you want to know what the common denominator to all of our struggles is in in this life? The, the common denominator in, in virtually all of our struggles in this life, probably all of them, is that we choose to do life our way instead of doing life God's way. That's really what it all boils down to. Uh, and, and we make excuses for, for why my way's best. And, and when one excuse fails, we make up another excuse. And we just keep looking for these loopholes for why we should continue to do life on our terms instead of just submitting to the Lord and trusting in his good and perfect will for our lives. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. And yet we reject his path and we think we know better. We keep coming up with these loopholes for reasons why I should not follow Jesus's path and instead go my own way. And so maybe you're here this morning and maybe things aren't working out the way you thought they were in your marriage. And maybe you've been entertaining all of these loopholes of how you could get out of your marriage or maybe, you know, different techniques or tactics that we could use to improve our marriage. And you've been exploring every option except Jesus's way. And Jesus' way is to cherish your spouse and to serve them and honor them and love them and sacrifice for them like Jesus sacrificed for you. Oh, well, yeah, that, wouldn't ever, that would never work. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing it this way. How's that working out for you? Or, or, or maybe you're sitting here this morning and financially you're just struggling. And maybe your, your finances, you just, you just can't ever seem to get ahead. And, and it's just like one thing after another, and the bills are mounting, and the debts are mounting, and, and, and it's like, you know, what, what's going on here? And Jesus in Scripture has laid out a path that leads to life, that leads to fulfillment, that leads to peace in how we manage our finances. Well, well come, come on, what does the Bible know, right? I mean, what, what would the Bible have to say about that issue? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that guy I've been watching on, you know, CNN at, at the, at, in the evenings, right? And, and we try all of these other paths except the path that really does lead to life and happiness and fulfillment. And we wonder why things aren't working out. Maybe you are here this morning, you've been struggling with, with rebellious kids. And, and you've been wondering, you know, how do I parent effectively? It just seems like nothing I do ever gets through to these kids. And unfortunately, we can't go to Amazon and order our mom goggles like we saw in the skit earlier. And it's like you've tried all these different tactics, all of these different tips, all these different techniques. You've tried spanking. You've tried ignoring them. You've tried just letting them do their own thing, and nothing seems to work. And yet the Bible has laid out wisdom for us 
and how to love and serve our family, how to discipline, all of these things that lead to a healthy, fruitful, productive relationship in our families. But, but, but what does God know? I mean, honestly, it's, I mean, it's not like he created us or anything, right? See, see, this is our fundamental problem as humans. We repeatedly look for loopholes instead of looking to the Lord. Friends, how you approach Jesus matters, and it makes all the difference in the world. The religious leaders 2,000 years ago, they approached Jesus with skepticism. They approached Jesus with antagonism. And they missed out on the joy and blessing of having a right relationship with their creator. But friends, for those who submit to Jesus, who recognize his authority as king, as Lord, as sovereign over our lives, when you trust in Jesus and follow his way, it truly does lead to life and life to the full. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But more importantly, he says, give to God what is God's. Are you doing that this morning? Have you submitted your life to your creator? Have you given him charge over all that he's given to you? Or are you just looking for loopholes? Jesus, in his way, leads to life. And I pray, friends, that you'll trust him and that you'll follow him and that you'll experience the life that he has for us, the life to the full. Let me close on word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom that we have in our Lord's teachings. Thank you, God, for the instructions you've given us today on our responsibility as citizens in this world. Thank you for your instructions this morning as they relate to to marriage and, and more than that, the afterlife and our ultimate hope of eternity in your presence. And I pray, Jesus, that my friends this morning would leave here having been encouraged by these truths. But Lord, as I concluded this morning, I think the last two weeks raised this, this bigger challenge, this bigger question. Are we really submitting to Jesus as the ultimate authority in our lives or have we been looking for loopholes? living our lives on our terms instead of on your terms. And Lord, if there's people here this morning who recognize that they've been straying from you, they've been trying every other way except God's way, I pray that even here this morning that they would make a renewed commitment to seek you and to follow you and to experience the life and life to the full that you offer us when we walk faithfully in your ways. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't ever put their trust in you as their Savior and Lord, I pray that they might even do that this morning, that they might stop living for themselves and they might put you on the throne of their heart today by saying a simple prayer, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to make you the Lord of my life. I want to live for you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of of living with you in a relationship with you. We thank you that your ways lead to life and life to the full. I pray that each and every one of us experiences that joy and peace and fulfillment as we walk with you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to leave you with these words from Romans chapter 15 this morning. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him 
so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you, friends. Happy Mother's Day.